Hey, Obsassnax, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. Today, I'm here to talk about 308 First Wife. But before we get into the episode analysis, I want to take a moment to remind you that no matter where you're listening to the Sassnack Files, you can always find this podcast on most major recording platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. If you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassanac Files for all of the latest and greatest news, including any updates on Outlander Season 6 and Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. Also going on on Facebook right now, we have our prep for our best episode of Season 5 bracket. We have currently finished buy rounds and later this week we'll begin voting on our first round of matchups, so make sure to check back on the Sassnack Files Facebook or Instagram page to cast your vote there. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 308 First Wife. Sassnacks. I am ready to talk some First Wife. So excited. This is one of my favorite episodes of season three. I just feel like there is so much drama, so much coming to a head in this episode between Jamie and Claire and the entire Murray gang at Lollybrock. Obviously, Leary throws a wrench in the works. Just so much going on, and I'm so excited to chat with you guys about it. So let's just dive right in. The first thing that I really feel is extremely important to this episode is Claire's return to Lollybrock. It was really interesting for me to see this as a viewer because last time we saw Claire with the Murrays, everything was sunshine and roses, right? And Jenny was saying, take care of my brother. And then she went through the stones and it's been 20 years, right? So obviously there's some mistrust there. And it's so interesting to see even Ian, who was so happy to see Claire in the last episode, just kind of be very, not hostile, but very cautious about Claire. Jenny is a little bit more upfront, but then again, she's always that way. Ian's a bit of a peacemaker. He doesn't like to rock the boat. But Jenny is very much a speak her mind type person. She's not one to hide it when she doesn't like you or she doesn't agree with what you're doing. So it really didn't come as a shock, I guess, to see Jenny treat Claire the way that she does. As a sister, I really do get Jenny's behavior. Jenny loves Jamie, right? He's the world to her. Besides Ian and her children, Jamie is the one person that Jenny cares about most. And she saw him battle his way back from all the devastation that he suffered at Culloden and was really a shell of himself for all of those years that he was living in the cave, not speaking even really because he was so broken. And then he went to prison and he came back. He still wasn't himself. And he's finally back to some version of the Jamie that Jenny once knew And then in Waltz's Claire, expecting everything to be the same as it was. And I really do get why Jenny is so protective of Jamie. That is a huge reason why she treats Claire the way that she does. And I can't blame her for that. 
But also one thing that is kind of easy to overlook until it's thrown in your face in that scene between Jenny and Claire is that Jenny was hurt herself by what Claire did. Claire was her best friend and her sister in a lot of ways, and she just up and disappeared. That had to be so hard on Jenny that she cared about her like she cares about Jamie. And they thought that she was dead. Jamie told them that she was dead, and Ian and Jenny, they both grieved over her for a long time and finally put it to rest, got some closure out of the deal. And then to find out that she was alive, that must have felt like just a stab in the back that she had been alive for all this time and not even bothered to write so much as a letter. As much as I want to say, okay, Jenny, like let her off the hook. Jenny doesn't know that Claire has gone 200 years into the future and was not able to send her a letter, let her know she was okay, keep in touch. That's something that doesn't really even occur to her because, I mean, why would it? So in Jenny's mind, Claire just up and disappeared and didn't really care to keep in touch, despite even if Jamie was dead, like Jenny still felt that she was owed that. And I can't say that I disagree with Jenny. I That would be really rough to consider someone as a sister and then to just have them cut off all communication with you. That would be beyond bearing for me, I think. So I really do get Jenny in this situation. But with Claire's return to Lollybrock, I feel like in this show, it's so easy to lose the concept of time because the series Outlander takes place over the course of like, I think it's going to take place over the course of like 50 or 60 years by the time it's all said and done. I think Diana said that book 10 is going to end with Jamie and Claire in their 70s or something like that. So yeah, 50 years. So it's really easy to lose track of time. And I thought that the best way to really gauge how much time has passed, I mean, obviously, yes, we know that it's been 20 years. That's kind of been pounded into our head at this point. But one thing that really just kind of puts it into perspective for me is seeing all of these children of Jenny and Ian's grown and with children and spouses of their own. I mean, we look at we Jamie, as Claire describes him. He's a grown man. He's got four children and a wife, and he doesn't even recognize Claire. I mean, that's how long it's been. It must have really hurt Claire when Jenny said, yeah, Claire used to live here when you were about Michael's age. And that was it. Like, she didn't bother to even try to explain that Claire is actually your aunt, but, you know, it's a big clusterfuck at this point. I mean, I get it. How That's kind of hard to explain. I don't think Jenny even understands it herself at this point, so I guess it might be a bit much to ask. But I really do like seeing all of the Murray children with their own lives and the little twins, Angus and Anthony. They were so adorable. But it really must have just been this shock for Claire to see that the baby that she delivered, that Jenny was having such a hard time having that was breech. And it was the first baby that Claire had brought into the world. That little girl 
is the mother of these two adorable little boys in front of her. Like, that must have been such a trip for her. Honestly, it was so good to see all the little kids running around Lollybrock. It really gives a good picture of what everyday life is like, I guess, that Jenny and Ian are grandparents. And I love the little side where Jenny was like, well, that'll be your supper then. You know, it was adorable. I really appreciated it. So really in this beginning sequence, we're we're just scratching the surface of everything that has changed at Lollybrock in this 20 years. We did see bits and pieces here and there over the course of the first few episodes, especially in Surrender, with things being different and changing and the children growing up. But it's really just set in stone at this point. Okay, we're in the present and here are all of these new characters added to the heap, full-blown adults with their own lives. But the scene that I think really, above all, sets everything up as a complete continuation of where things were left in creme de menthe. The very first scene of the episode here, when Jamie and Claire and young Ian return home from Edinburgh, and they come into the house, and young Ian is clearly in trouble. It's one of those things where he's trying to talk himself out of trouble, and really, he's just getting everybody else into deeper trouble with him. And it all starts with The, why should I be here feeding chickens when I can be in the city earning a wage? And they're like, oh, earning a wage. That's what you were doing? He said, yeah, and I was good at it too. Fergus said so. I sold 20 casks of brandy before we were forced to flee after the fire. (laughs) And Ian says, what fire? And why were you forced to flee? And then Jenny at the same time is like, you had my son selling liquor and consorting with criminals. And Jamie's just looking at young Ian like, shut the front door, buddy. Like, ixnay on the oopid stay. Oh my god. Yeah, because poor Ian, he thinks he's doing himself a favor. And really, he's just (laughs) not. He's just getting himself into more and more trouble. And Jamie is really caught out here, I think. It's interesting to see this scene after the argument that Claire and Jamie had in the brothel when she's like, you don't understand what it's like to be a worried parent. You're not the boy's father. And now Jamie's here saying, I promised you I would look out for him. And I did. I looked after him as if he were my own son. You really got the feeling that this was something that Jenny and Ian and Jamie have talked about time and again. Cut us a break. I know that the boy looks up to you, but we're his parents and he needs to listen to us. And you get that vibe when Ian and Jamie are talking. Ian says, well, then you can punish him as your own. And he said, well, I have a different idea. And so while Ian is doing this boy's task, which Jamie's right is a bit of a punishment because Ian is seeing himself as a grown man who can go to the city and earn a wage. And so now he's being belittled. He's given a child's task as his punishment. And that's more of the mental versus the physical side of punishment, which I think that Jamie really understands. Like Jamie's taken his fair share of physical punishments, but he's made the decision to kind of put his two cents in as far as You can beat the boy all you want, but that's clearly not getting through to him. So why don't we try this? And as Ian is admitting to Jamie, you know, I think you might have been right about this. He's also saying like, look, you have to understand where me and Jenny are coming from. Like, we're worried about Ian and 
He follows you around like a puppy. He adores you. He idolizes you. What are we supposed to do with that? So I really felt for Ian and Jenny because that's got to be so rough to have a child that not only doesn't listen to you and puts himself in constant danger, but that looks up to another adult in his life more than his parents who have done nothing but love and support him. I mean, I'm sure that Ian sees it as being smothered to death. Like he doesn't want to live on the farm. He's not satisfied with the life that his siblings lead. And we see that time and time again over the course of this series. Like Ian was just destined to live a life of adventure and to be with Jamie and Claire. But that's not something that Ian and Jenny are willing to accept right off the bat. And in fact, it's a very rough journey that all starts with this episode. But eventually he comes into his own and decides on his own path. And it's like Jamie tells Jenny, you treat him like a boy, but he's a man now. You might as well give him a taste of freedom while it's still yours to give. Then Jenny makes the snide comment, oh, so you're an authority on raising bairns now? Which was a bit below the belt, I will admit, because A, Jamie has two children and it eats him alive that he can't be a part of their lives. And B, he really does love Ian like a son. And I think that's part of the reason that Jamie has such a hard time relinquishing control of the situation to Jenny because he has this bond with this baby that he hid from the Redcoats with in the hall in 302. And that attachment has continued all through Ian's formative years so that now we've reached a point where he's a young man that idolizes his uncle and his uncle reciprocates that affection and is using him as a surrogate son, like as an outlet for the children that he wasn't able to raise. And so it's all very, like you can see the motivation in it. There's an interesting conversation that's had in season five. I'll try to remember to bring it up whenever we get there because I really do feel like it's valid to see that complete arc from where we are now in this episode to where we get to in season five between these two characters. But the conversation that Jenny and Jamie have, yes, it's about Ian, but also it's a very good conversation between a brother and a sister. I know I've talked about it before that I think that Sam Hewen and Laura Donnelly were perfectly cast as siblings. I think that their relationship off the screen and them knowing each other prior to Outlander really lends an authenticity to their relationship. And I love these scenes between Jamie and Jenny because of it. There's just this bond that they have and you can really see that these two characters love each other and they want what's best for each other. And so when Jenny asks Jamie about Claire it's a bit of a chiding remark at first. She's like, well, you must know it's a mortal sin to take another wife while the first still walks the earth. And Jamie just kind of stands up because he's a very religious man. His faith is very important to him and he would never commit a mortal sin. And so he just stands up straighter and he was like, I never would have taken another wife if I'd known Claire was still alive, which is true. He never in a million years, nobody could have talked him into that. If he had known Claire would come back to him, there's no way that he would have married anyone. But he didn't. He thought that Claire was gone for good, that she thought he was dead and she was never coming back. And 
you know, he had his motivations for getting married, which we'll talk about here in a bit, but you can't blame the guy for wanting more from his life. Jenny was like, if you thought she was dead, why didn't you share your grief with me? That line struck a chord with me because it's so true. When your family is hurting and in pain, all you want is for them to talk to you, to share their grief, to lend you their burden so they're not carrying it all by themselves. And Jamie says, I barely wanted to breathe, let alone speak of it. And she kind of backs down because she knows, she saw that with every fiber of her being, how much he was struggling to be any semblance of a human being. He was so deep in grief for so many years. He was a shell of himself. So she can't argue with that. That statement is completely true. She saw it with her own eyes. But she also is wanting more out of the situation. She says, I get that, but she's alive and she's here now and I need you to tell me what happened. Jamie and Claire concocted the story that she was in the colonies. And so he tells Jenny, you know, I gave her money and safe passage to the colonies. And when she thought I had died, that's where she went. Long story short. But then I heard that she died and she heard I died. And there was basically a 20 year long miscommunication. Jenny, she has so many questions. And I get it. Because I'm like that myself. And she knows that, yes, while some of what Jamie is telling her is true, and obviously from her own experience, she knows that Jamie did really think that she was dead. His grief on that account was extremely genuine. But she also knows something's up. She knows that she's not getting the full truth. And I think that is a lot of her journey in this episode is making up her mind whether she can live with only having half of the story. And so Jamie kind of walks away and she lets it go for now. But she corners Claire about it later. So Jenny is really the propelling force, I felt like. There obviously was the entire Jamie married Leary thing that just kind of was like, what the hell? But Jenny's impact on both Claire and Jamie in this episode really just drives the plot forward. And I I really enjoyed her character and everything that she does for First Wife. So whenever I was watching this episode, somehow I always forget that the huge fight, like knockdown, drag out fight that Jamie and Claire have in this episode occurs really early on. And I always somehow get caught off guard by that. I don't know why. I guess it makes sense because then they have the majority of the episode to deal with all the fallout from it. This argument between them is so visceral. It always gets me really worked up and also really attached. Like my eyes are glued to the screen every time I watch this scene because it's intense. You've got all the fears and doubts and pain that Jamie and Claire have both suffered individually over the course of the last 20 years, just all coming to a head in this fight, this argument, this whatever, (laughs) Kaby Laby, but yeah, it's it's a mess and legitimately so. I can't say that I blame Jamie entirely for not telling Claire sooner. 
he calls himself a coward, and I guess that's one way you could put it. But quite frankly, I think it's only natural to be scared. Like, you've gone through 20 years of emotional agony of being half a person, as he described it, and... It's impossible to imagine that a person would not be scared of feeling that way again. You finally get your other half back and all you can think about is all the things that are going to go wrong, all the reasons that you could lose them again. Being married to someone else, let alone Claire's worst enemy, is a very valid reason for Claire to pack up ship and go home. Go back through the stones to Bree and her career It's a valid concern for Jamie. I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't understand why he did it. Yes, he's a very honest person and it's out of character for him to not tell Claire. But if we're being honest, guys, he tried to tell Claire back in A. Malcolm and Claire stopped him and said, you know what? It's not important. I just need to know if you ever loved anyone else. To which he responds, honestly, no. I never loved anyone else but you. Then the next time that he tries to tell her, he gets interrupted by the girls and Leary. By then, obviously, it's too late. But my God, you know, I I get everybody's pain in this argument or clusterfuck, quite frankly. I even, to an extent, like I understand Leary's horror at it all because... She thinks that she's finally married to a decent man who's going to take care of her and her kids. And lo and behold, (laughs) this bitch that she doesn't think ever deserved Jamie in the first place and thought was a witch is back from the dead. Like, if anything reaffirms her assertion that Claire was a witch, that'd be it. Because, come on, the girl was supposed to be dead. But (laughs) I... I hesitate to get into Larry's head because it's a dark and twisted place, but there you go. If anything's going to kind of make you halfway understand Larry's mindset, I guess that's going to be it. Not that I agree with Larry's choice to bring a loaded gun in and threaten to kill Claire and accidentally shoot Jamie. Like, that's just not okay either. Yeah, I get it. And I get that, like, by the way that Jamie goes after her, he does have some affection for Larry. He's not completely heartless and cold-blooded. But she's not Claire. I mean, let's face it. Leary had to know that Jamie was still in love with Claire, even after all of this time. Like, she had to sense that his heart wasn't in it. So I can't say that I'm completely sympathetic to her plight, but I do understand why she was upset. Claire is absolutely devastated. Katrina did such an amazing job in this scene. Just that wide-eyed, teary, glazed-over look. This oh my God, shock and awe face when she sees the kids and they're calling him daddy. And Jamie just looks at her like, fuck, it's a crazy moment. And then, and then Jamie runs out of the room after Leary leaving Claire to just deal with all of this. And can you blame Claire for wanting to pack up her crap and get out of there? Like, oh my God, Jamie knew what Leary did to Claire. He knew. And For him to marry her, like, holy crap. And this is where I really, like, I love this episode, but I really do have such a hard time accepting the fact that Jamie knew Larry tried to kill Claire and married her anyway. Like, I'm sorry, that is not 
anything Jamie would do. It is so passed out of character. I don't even know what it would be called, but it's just, it's not a thing. (laughs) So in the books, Jamie did not know that Larry tried to have Claire killed. And it was far more believable that he would marry her not knowing. And then he tells Claire later, like, obviously, if I had known that, I never would have married her. Like, I understand why you're upset now. And I'm sorry that that happened. Like, you you should have told me, basically, is what he's saying. Not to lay blame on Claire, because he made the decision to remarry, but it's just awful, this whole situation. When Jamie comes back and they have the entire discussion, Claire is under the mistaken impression that Marsley and Joan are Jamie's girls, which they're not. Larry was married twice before, and Marsley is the daughter of Larry's first husband, and Joan is the daughter of Larry's second husband. So (laughs) I love the line, believe it or not, Claire, there are other redheaded men in Scotland. But I could see on Claire's face, this is where I appreciate Katrina's work as an actress so much. I could see on Claire's face when she saw Joan, she was thinking of her own daughter and how much she saw Brie and possibly even Faith in that little girl. And whether, I mean, obviously it wasn't there, any similarity between Jamie, but in her complete and utter state of shock and panic, that's what she was seeing. So it really must have just driven a knife clear through her heart, like broken open her soul. I just can't imagine. And okay, so the girls aren't biologically Jamie's, but does that really matter in the grand scheme of things? Like he still married Leary. The dialogue in this scene is just absolutely fantastic. Jamie finally gets Claire a little calmed down to where she's willing to at least listen to him for a second. And he said, you know, I was a coward. That's why I didn't tell you. And he was like, I would give up everything, life, love, family, whatever, to be with you, to lie with you again, even though you left me. And this is when the pointing of fingers and the anger and the frustration and the grief and everything just takes over. And neither one of them are sane anymore. They're just screaming and yelling. Which I've been that mad, trust me, I get it. Especially for two people like Jamie and Claire that have as fiery a personalities as they do. Like, it was impossible to think that this wouldn't turn into a screaming match. But Claire is just beyond herself when he tells her that. Well, you're the one that left me. And she just drops everything she's holding and looks at him with this horror on her face. And she's like, left you? Like, you forced me to go back. I would have died gladly at Culloden with you. And now you're saying that you blame me for that. And he's like, well, I don't blame you for that. You had to go back for Brianna's sake. I can't regret that decision. But I'm like, then what are you saying, Jamie? (laughs) Like, I'm just thinking, I'm like, and he's not making any sense. And I get that. Like, he's just so beside himself with the situation. But he kind of did back himself into a corner. So I just, it's such a rough, rough go of it, quite frankly. But probably my favorite line from that entire thing is when he says, do you know what it is to live 20 years without a heart? To be half a man and accustom yourself to exist in the bit that is left. And Claire looks at him and says, do I know? 
Do I know how that feels? Yes, you bastard. I know how that that feels. Or did you think that I went back to Frank and lived happily ever after? And he says, sometimes I hope you did. And sometimes I could see it day and night, him lying with you, taking your body, holding my bairn, and I could kill you for it. I was having a conversation with someone about this. And I really, like, yes, he chose to send her back. And that was his choice. But he didn't ever really think he was going to have to live with the consequences of that decision. Deep down, he wanted Claire to be happy. If he was going to die, he wanted what was best for Claire and for his child. But doing something that is best for your loved one, knowing that you're going to die and not have to deal with the fallout, that's one thing. But making a decision that self-sacrificing and having to live with the idea that somebody else is living his life, that has to be so unbelievably overwhelming to the senses, just beyond anything I could ever hope to handle and comprehend. So I really did feel him in that moment. I felt for him. And then, of course, it ends with them ripping each other's clothes off. (laughs) And, you know, like, some people say, like, really? Really? You're, like, I know that bothers people. But honestly, like, sex is how Jamie and Claire connect to one another. Jamie knows this about Claire, that she's a very sensual person. And he knows where all of her sexual buttons are. And he was going to use every single one of them to his advantage. Like, if that's what he had to do to make her stay, he was prepared to do it. So it's just very interesting that they get their blood up and their their instinct is to have angry sex. Just rake and claw at each other and take it out on one another. And this happens over and over again in the book. That's just the way their relationship works. And so I never really had a problem with the sex scene, but I know some people that do. So that's personally just my take on it. All in all, the best part by far of that scene is when Jenny comes in and dumps the pitcher of water on him. (laughs) It's really just the biggest scene stealer of this episode. I absolutely love it. Which takes me into one of the greatest parts of First Wife, frankly, is Jenny and Ian's relationship. We got a deeper look at it this time, and I really dug it. We see so much of Jamie and Claire's relationship, and we're getting to the point in season five and season six where we're seeing more and more of Brianna and Roger's relationship. But Jenny and Ian's relationship is this open field of possibility. Like we don't, we have a little bit of an idea of how it works, but not really. And we got an inside view at it this time when we had the scene where Jenny was cleaning up the bedroom where with the shattered pitcher and the water everywhere and stuff. Ian is so brutally honest with her in a way that nobody else can be honest with Jenny. He says... If there's a pot of shite on to boil, you stir like it's God's work. (laughs) Jenny's like, oh, so you're saying this is my fault then? And he's like, do you forget I hear your prayers every night? I know all you want is your brother to be happy after everything that he has suffered in his life. And here he is. He has Claire back. It's the only thing he's wanted for 20 years. He has his happiness within reach. And you're going to rip it away from him. You can't let him have it. 
To which Jenny replies, well, does this look like happiness to you? I'm like, girl, she's been gone for 20 years. 20 years. Give them a break. They got to have an adjustment period somewhere in here. Like, it's not going to come back and it's going to be like everything was like everything was 20 years ago. Like, you've got to be kidding me. So basically, at this point, Jenny is just trying to make herself feel better. But I love that Ian could put it in perspective for her in a way that no one else could. That is the one thing that I love more than anything about Ian's character is Jenny is fiery and impulsive and very quick to defend the one that she loves and not give a damn about what anybody else thinks. But Ian is very much in the background, observing, watching, thinking about what he's doing. He's a peacemaker. He doesn't like to rock the boat, as I said earlier. So they balance each other out in a great way. And I adore that we got to see more of them in this episode. So all in all, I guess... The big thing that is the question on everybody's mind is, so why did Jamie do it? Why did he marry Leary? Knowing what she did. And I wish I could answer that fully. (laughs) I don't understand it. I think it was a mistake on the part of the writers. But I'm going to try to get in his headspace a little bit. Basically just throwing out the idea that, yes, he did know that Leary tried to kill Claire and he married her anyway. I'm going to throw all that out the window because that's a part that I don't think he would ever do and he didn't in the book. So I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen (laughs) for the sake of this argument. Jamie was broken for a long time. We saw that in Surrender. And when he went off to prison, he found some semblance of normalcy again. He was responsible for men and felt like he had a purpose in life. He got money for his family. He made sure they were taken care of. That move to go to prison was his first step towards reclaiming his life. So from prison, he went to Hellwater and he got a little bit more of himself back because he had a friendship with Lord John and he had his son, which was the greatest joy of his life, raising his son for the first six years of his life, or at least having some impact on the person that he would become. So by the time Jamie leaves Hellwater, he's devastated that he has to leave his son, but he feels like he's himself again to an extent. He's had a peaceful few years. He heads back home. And as he's watching his sister and her family have a great time at Hogmanay, he's thinking about all the people that he's lost and all the things that he doesn't have. And he's lonely. He's just lonely. And he's thinking about all the things that he gave up when Claire left. He gave up the chance to be a husband and a father. And those were two things that in his heart and his soul, like deep in his bones, Jamie knows he was meant to be those two things. That he wouldn't ever be complete unless he had that in his life. And so as he's contemplating this, Out of the clear blue sky dropped in his lap are these two girls, these two adorable, bright-eyed, smiles all over their face girls, Marsley and Joan. It just so happens that their mother is widowed and looking for a husband. And it's Leary. You know, how bad could it be? (laughs) He didn't marry Leary for Leary. 
And I know that sounds really bad, but the reality of the situation is in the 18th century, people didn't get married for love very often. It just didn't happen. So it wasn't completely out of the norm for that to occur. He married Leary for her children. And it's as he says when he's explaining this to Claire, the time that he spent raising Marsley and Joan and making a family with them it was a very special time for him. It meant a lot. And you can tell that he absolutely adores those girls. He loves them so much. And he was willing to weather the storm with Leary to give them a father. So when we see him talking to Joni after the whole explosion with Leary and she's stormed out, it's the most adorable scene. Sam with children is just like, oh, my heart. He always does such a good job. He really conveys the tenderness that I would expect Jamie to have towards a little girl. If he married her mother for the sake of her, I would expect him to have this warmth. And he certainly does. You can tell that he cares about them so much. And Joni loves him as well. She's like, so now that you're with Claire, you'll go away forever. And he says, Dunafash, Joni, I love you and your sister. And I will always be there for you. I promise. I love it. I just, the way that he explains things to her, he's just saying, you know, your mother and I don't have a bond that keeps people together forever. And that kind of brings a light on in Joan. And she's like, but you have this bond with this other woman. So she's halfway understanding of it. Of course, I'm sure that changes over the next few years as she's left without her sister to be with her mother. I'm sure that she's a little less understanding about it. But at least in this moment, she gets a solid farewell with Jamie and halfway understands why he did what he did. I felt really good about where that ended, honestly. Do I think that... After what Leary did, she deserved to be let off? No, I don't, honestly. Like, I think that they should have let Leary be transported and that Claire should have, Claire and Jamie should have taken on Marsley and Joan. I mean, ideally that would have happened, but I get why Jamie made that decision. He didn't want them to lose their mother, which is very nice of him, but I also get where Claire's coming from. I'm like, Okay, so Leary has now tried to kill Claire and almost killed Jamie. And she's still walking around a free woman. (laughs) Like, okay. Yeah, this totally makes sense. Don't really appreciate that irony. (laughs) It's a bit frustrating. But overall, I really feel like this is a very sound episode. One other thing that I'm like kind of toying around with is the idea that Claire repeatedly says that Jamie lied to her in this episode. Like, that's why she's so mad at him. And I can't honestly say that I agree with that statement because I don't think he did lie to her. I mean, yes, he didn't tell her, but I don't even think it was a lie of omission at that point because when he tried to tell her, she said, oh, it's not important. (laughs) So it's kind of Claire's own fault. I mean, I know she needed somebody to blame and that she was really hurt by the situation. And no, I don't agree with what Jamie did, but... Do I think that he out and out lied to her about the situation? No. I think he was careful with his word choice. And I think that he 
wanted to tell her, but he was scared to. And I don't think that's really even a lie of omission, to be honest. So that's kind of where I stand on that. Overall, when Claire says on that cliff top when they're waiting for Ian to get the treasure, they have the conversation that we've all been waiting for. You know, Claire can't even look at Jamie anymore. She's saying, ever since I've come back, it's been so much harder than I ever imagined it would be. I get that. Like, yes, she thought to some extent that it would be difficult and there were risks in coming back. She knew that Jamie would probably have a life that he may be remarried, he may have children, that he may not love her anymore. Like these were all risks that she was willing to assume. But experiencing the reality of that has her a little shaken. Like it's all fine and dandy to say, okay, yeah, this could be a thing. But do you really understand what that's going to mean? Like you're going to have to go back. And that's what, I mean, she was marching out the door. She was ready to go back through the stones. And then standing on top of that cliff face, Jamie's faced with his worst fear, I think, that it really is all too much, that she's going to go back. He references what he told her in the bedroom before the world fell apart. And it's my quote of the episode because I think it's absolutely gorgeous, the whole metaphor of it all. He says, you kin the gray lag, it mates for life. You kill a grown one out hunting, you must wait for its mate will come to mourn. And you must kill that one too, or it will grieve itself to death, calling through the skies for the lost one. So that's what he's saying, that he and Claire are like these geese that mate for life. If you kill one or you take one out of the equation, you might as well kill the other one too, because it's a half-life. They will literally mourn themselves to death. And I love that analogy of their relationship, because it's what we witnessed for 20 years that they are mated for life, that all they can do when they're apart is think about one another. And while they are living their life, it's a life full of grief. It's very poetic as per usual for our Jamie Fraser, but I really did love that line. And I loved that it was called back in this cliffside chat where he says, so yeah, we're mated for life. Are you going to risk the man that I am now for the sake of the one that you once knew? And Claire has a decision to make because if we're being honest and putting it all out there, how could she expect him to be the same person? How could he expect her to be the same person? It's whether they're going to learn to cope with the people that they've become. And so that leaves kind of open-ended and we're left with the revelation that Jamie and Claire are the worst babysitters on the face of the planet because their charge gets abducted and taken away by pirates. So isn't that fantastic? But I love the cinematography of this whole last moment because as Jamie and Claire are staring out at the ocean in complete and utter horror, the camera zooms off of them and it's like it's revealing this world full of possibilities. Like it's coming off of Scotland and zooming into like the world is opening up before our eyes to all of these new possibilities. Like what's going to happen? Well, we got five more episodes to find out. So I love that it ends there. I think it's a great way to break it all down because this season is broken into three acts, in my opinion. So you have the 20 years that Jamie and Claire were apart. Then you have the three episodes that are 
in Edinburgh in Scotland. And then you have the rest of the season, which is on the ocean and in the Caribbean. So we're officially past the second act of this season, heading into the home stretch, act number three. A bit of a slow stretch, I think. It hurries up really quick in the last two episodes, but here for the next little bit, it's going to be a bit of a trudge through the doldrums. (laughs) So that about wraps it up for this week. The only thing that I did want to mention was my performance of the episode, which is a tie between Laura Donnelly and Stephen Cree, just because it was so great to have them back this episode. And I think that they really did make it work in a unique way. I love seeing them portray Jenny and Ian and their relationship, like I said. And I think that they add a whole other dimension to who Jamie is and who Claire is and their relationship dynamic. So I think that they did an awesome job lightening the mood with some comedic relief, also giving us something else to concentrate on and kind of like step aside and see something different for a hot minute as far as Ian and Jenny's relationship and their marriage and how it functions. I love that. They get my performance of the episode. And I'm so sorry, guys, that I dropped the ball this week and I did not get the listener feedback thread out there for First Wife. I apologize because I know some of you were probably really excited to tell me what you thought of this episode. So if you want to get it out there and let me know what you thought, I'd be happy to converse with you on the thread for this podcast episode. So feel free to leave me a comment with your thoughts. And like I said, I will get back to you in a jiffy. It's been a little crazy this week. I apologize. Lots of stuff going on including SAS Red Notice, which just dropped about 24 hours ago from when I'm recording this. And oh my God, guys, it is so good. The reviews on IMDb are terrible and they are not at all accurate in my opinion. Like I'll be the first to admit that, yes, I love Sam Hewen and that is why I wanted to watch it. But that is not the reason that I love it. It doesn't hurt anything that he's the leading man, but because I think he's a very talented actor and I think he does a fantastic job in this movie, but it is a gorgeous film. They filmed in some of the most amazing locations ever and it's a good script. I'm really curious to read the book. It's based off of the novel by Andy McNabb. I thought going in that it was going to be a solid action movie, And in reality, it's more of a suspense thriller with good action sequences woven into it. It's got a little touch of romance in it. It's a little cerebral. It examines the idea of functioning psychopaths, of good psychopaths versus bad psychopaths. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't know that there was such a thing as a good psychopath. But after watching this movie, I'm like, this is extremely interesting. And I'm definitely going to go and read the last two books in the Tom Buckingham series because I'm genuinely curious to find out where this story goes. So yes, guys, make sure to go check out SAS Red Notice. And if you like what you see, please go to IMDb and leave a good review because right now it's only showing four and a half stars because there are a lot of one and two ratings But I swear to you, there's some troll in there that has like 20 accounts and they all left ones or twos because there were some reviews that were left literally verbatim 
but just had different handles on them. And I was like, that's just not cool. Like, seriously, don't you have anything better to do with your time? It just blows my mind how creative people can be in different ways to put others down. It's it's just astounding to me. So don't be that way. If you don't like it, you don't like it. But, you know, it's it's definitely... I gave it a 10 because it kept me on the edge of my seat the entire time. It was way more than I expected. It was super intense. Definitely watch it with someone else so you can share the suspense of it all because I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? But yes, I really hope that you enjoy that. Cancel your plans this weekend and watch SAS Red Notice. You can watch it on all kinds of streaming platforms, Redbox, Amazon Prime, Apple TV. I guess it's on DirecTV On Demand, uh, along with a couple of others, including Google Play. I think it's available on YouTube TV as well. So those are all the avenues it's available to you. It's $9.99 US dollars to rent it on any of those platforms, and it is $14.99 to purchase it. I definitely feel like it was worth the purchase. It was a really good movie, and I'll definitely be watching it multiple times just because it has so many layers. So I hope you guys enjoy. Also, this week we got news that Outlander has been picked up for season seven. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) I know I just squeaked a little bit, but I'm just so excited, guys. Really and honestly, this cast and this crew deserve all the renewals. Like they deserve to have steady employment. And I'm so happy that our favorite TV show is back in the fold for another season. We have at least two more years of Outlander in our future. I cannot wait to see where this storyline is going. I know the cast is excited and... I'm really, really hoping we're going to get some behind the scenes for season six, too. Also, in an interview with Ron Moore a couple of weeks ago, I read that they're expecting news on an Outlander spinoff series here in the new future, which we all know is probably going to be an adaptation of the Lord John books or maybe one Lord John book in particular. So keep your eyes peeled for that news. I will make sure to share it as soon as I hear one way or the other. But... All in all, really good news on all fronts this week. Lots of things looking up for Outlander, and I'm so excited. Next week, I will be discussing 309, The Doldrums. Not one of my favorites, but I'm going to do my best to grin and bear it with a smile. So might be another shorter episode like last week, but we'll get through this together. I'm excited to talk to you guys about it. I will do my darndest to get that listener thread out there so you guys can share your thoughts and feelings on the doldrums as well. Until next week, guys, make sure you stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Have a good one, guys. 